Father, as we come again to the uh, text tonight and to think about the content of what you have revealed to us in history and the great events, the momentous things that you have done, we ask that the Holy Spirit, who was the maker and doer of those events and the generator of the scriptures and the regenerator of our hearts, would tonight illuminate them to these truths. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Just to uh, review, to prepare for tonight, we just want to review some basics that we are on the event of the fall, and therefore, because we're on that particular event, we're dealing with the issue of evil. Each great event of Scripture has an emphasis, and by approaching things event by event, you have something in your head, some imaginative powers to meditate upon these events. So once again, if we'll turn to Genesis 3, is to get in our minds again that what God reports about this momentous period. We want to look at Genesis 3, 17, 18, and 19. Because tonight we're going to move to the effect of evil in nature. I deliberately show this again and again because eventually you'll be able to remember it. Because I really think that this is the heart of the issue. It comes back to this again and again, and we'll see it. It keeps coming up in the issue of evil as it did in the issue of creation. And the other thing we want to review is that though there are thousands of, of, of reputed answers out there, what you want to do as a Christian is to remember the broad outlines. Because in the broad outline sense, there are not thousands of answers. Basically, there's only two. There's the answer of the Word of God, and there's the opposite, the negation of the Word of God. And everything else is a permutation and combination of this. So, just to review, remember that we have these two items, the create-a-creature distinction, and if you deny that, you don't have a distinction. So everything is, part, everything is united as one. And that has repercussions, as we've seen and studied the doctrine of the, uh, of the fall, we've seen that there are repercussions to that. It's all interrelated. One thing always leads to the other. And um, there are plenty of seats up here. I know you don't like it. I, uh, back when we were trying to build a building, I facetiously suggested to the building committee that what's, and we used to go through these catalogs of church furniture, and I facetiously suggested that what we really needed was an escalator with, a church, with a, all of the chairs on an escalator, and then see the pastor be up here, and he'd see that the front row is always empty, the second row is always empty. So he'd just press a button, those chairs disappear, and everybody moves forward. <laughs> Okay, um, when we look at the fall and look at the point where evil begins, it's dislocated from origin. That may seem like a very small point, but it, it's, it's mind-blowing, it's boggling, uh, the implications of this. 
that creation was one event and the fall was a separate event. And in the text tonight, in Genesis 3.17, here's the cursing. I want to remember this again. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now that's not, while it's self-destructive of the creation work of God, it actually is an outworking of the creation work of God because God, when he curses, curses within the design that he already built in. You'll notice that the ground is cursed because of you. What was the cause of the curse on nature? Man was. Well, why is man the cause of the curse on nature? Well, think back. When, when, we, were, when we first had the creation, who was pronounced to be the Lord who would rule over creation? It was man. So therefore, by man comes blessing and by man comes cursing. The text is all interrelated. Cursed is the ground because of you. and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. That blends with what we learn in Genesis 1, which was what was the mandate? To subdue the earth. How was man to subdue the earth? What would be some examples of subduing the earth? The first job that Adam had, tilling the garden in Eden. So what does the curse look like in verse 17? In toil you shall eat of it. You'll eat of it all right. You have to get a living out of the ground, but it's going to be now by toil. Both thorns and thistles, it will grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread until you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. One of the most poignant scriptures in the canon. And we want to, we want to be careful, as we said a couple of chapters ago, back many months, remember we said there are three ways of coming to Genesis, or coming to any part of the Bible for that matter. You can come in the spirit of submission to the authority of the text. You can come in a, in a rebellious spirit and say, I don't want to, I don't buy into this, it's all fantasy. Or you can be a, sort of the middle of the rotor, an accommodationist where you want to kind of keep uh, a cultural respectability, but at the same time, you want to be a Christian. And we want to, therefore, every time we go into one of these events, say to ourselves, wait a minute, how do other parts of the Bible interpret this part of the Bible? So if we have this event spoken of, where do you think we could get some commentary on this event by the Bible itself. And the classic place for doing that is Romans 8. So if you turn to Romans 8, you'll see how Paul enlarges on this text. I do this again and again, so hopefully after weeks of this, there won't be anyone here who is under the delusion that the New Testament can be separated from the Old Testament. If you want to write off the Old Testament, you have to be forthright and write off the New with it because they're interrelated. Here's another example. In Romans 8, uh, Paul's dealing with suffering and verse 20 of Romans chapter 8 is the Paul's commentary how he read Genesis 3 that we just read in the context of suffering. And by the way, do you notice what 
is the what is the practical problem of life that he's dealing with when Genesis 3 comes up? It's evil, suffering. That's when it comes up. So, right here in verse 20, for the creation was subject to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption, as this particular translation puts it, its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we now know, we, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves and so forth and so on talks about the resurrection. Well, here's an exposition of the fall by the New Testament. Because the New Testament always presupposes the historicity and accuracy of the Old Testament. You cannot be a New Testament Christian and kiss off the old. They are interrelated. So we'll see more of that tonight. But we want to, again, also, as we approach the, the issue of evil tonight, is just review a few more things that we've learned. We said that God is the creator. Man, I guess that pen's dried up. God is the creator, and we are in the creation. The creation has two parts, as we studied, man and nature. In the last few times, we've been dealing with the effect of evil on man. And it wasn't a very pretty sight. This, that delicate design of man, both his body and soul, is contaminated, body and soul. All parts. That's why in the Reformation, the theology was the total depravity. When you hear the word total depravity, you have to kind of watch it, because if you think about the word total, you unintentionally may get a wrong idea. The reformers were not saying that we are as depraved as we possibly could be. A better way of stating what they were trying to communicate would be our word comprehensive depravity, meaning that across the board from A to Z, every area is affected by the fall. There's not one area that's not touched by the fall. It doesn't argue that God hasn't restrained his grace and that uh, everybody's as depraved, because obviously if everybody's depraved as they could be, we'd all be dead. So, since we're all breathing, it's true that the sentence hasn't been permanently and fully carried out. So, that's what we've studied so far. We've studied the effect of evil on man. And that's fundamental because of any theory of economics, any theory of psychology, any theory of literature, any theory that involves any activity of man has been touched by evil. And any time you academically approach a subject and the issue of evil is not really substantively dealt with, you ha you're, you're entertaining a delusion. You, what you're doing is creating castles in the air because you're not coming to terms with the fact that everything we do is contaminated. Everything that's produced by man has been contaminated. So, we say then, and the big word, and we, we, we said there's a basic distinction, and that is that from the Bible standpoint, the universe is abnormal. 
from the Bible's point of view, what we see today in ourselves and in the universe is not normal. It's not what it was when it left the hand of God. The pagan mind, on the other hand, the pagan view is that the universe is normal and that evil always existed. Evil has always been there, is now, and ever shall be there. And I think those of us who've been raised in Christian circles better think about this. We will not ever understand the frustration and the, um, what's the word I'm looking, thinking of, um, frustration, uh, urgency, the despair, um, th that dimension of unbelief. If we don't grasp what the awful implications are, usually the more incisive the unbeliever, the more depressed they really are. Now, depressed, I don't mean necessarily psychologically depressed, but intellectually depressed, really seriously depressed. You heard Cindy Baxter a couple of weeks ago get up here and tell about why it is, as an English teacher, she can't find any, any literature, any great literature in the 20th century except that which was written by existentialists. Because the intellectual climate of our world is depressed. And it's depressed because men have had centuries to think through this. And over the centuries of thinking, there's never been another answer than that of the Bible. All other answers hold that evil always has been there and always will be there. The other part that we've examined, as far as the contrast between the biblical position and the pagan position, is that there's such a thing as responsibility over here. The fall is the greatest illustration of the awesome responsibility man has. It was the first fundamental act of man and is the first demonstration of, real, of, the, of the awesome responsibility. What we have here is that man is responsible for every bit of evil in the world. Now that surely is a revelation of responsibility. Man is responsible for death in every area. Man is responsible for the cursing on the ground because of your sake, this was cursed. So man is to blame, and that is responsibility. Now over here, the other side will always held to some sort of theory of the victim. That was true in ancient Egypt. You can read, read the text. If we had a chance, I'd put some of the texts in here that deal with evil from the standpoint of the ancient Egyptians because it's useful, because that's where Moses was educated, and if Moses was really educated in the, in the culture of Egypt, then how come he didn't write like the culture of Egypt? And you can tell that whoever wrote Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy is not writing out of an Egyptian worldview. And we know Moses was trained in an Egyptian worldview, so obviously something happened to the guy. Something changed his mind. And we don't even get a glimmer of the radical difference between what we read in the Genesis narratives and what Moses came out of in his schooling. But in Egypt, men were always considered to be the victims, the passive victims of evil and sorrow. Sickness was something that just happened and we were victims of it. And that theory holds true today. It's the same thing. What you want to learn as a Christian is to realize that thoughts have not changed down through the centuries. If we really believe the gospel is the only answer, then it's got to be the only answer in every century. 
It's got to be the only answer in every language. It's got to be the only answer in every circumstance. And the only way it can do that is that ideas really don't change from century to century. They just change their, their, their clothing, but they're still the same idea. So while the Egyptians denied responsibility and, and had a theory of the victim, we do too. What's the search for the great gene that causes homosexuality all about? What's the search for the gene that causes this or that behavior all about? It's the same old thing. It's not science. Science is the methods of doing it. But the motive isn't scientific. Don't kid yourself because the vocabulary has changed. The idea is the age-old idea that hasn't changed a bit in 3,000 and 4,000 years. Because we're still arguing the case that the universe is really normal in spite of what we see. This is really normal. We're not responsible for it. That's, that's the whole deal here. So that's, since that's the deal, what we have to do as Christians is say to ourselves, now, through the light of the Holy Spirit, illuminating my heart to Scripture, how do I set myself against that? We are to be in the world, but not of the world. So how do I separate myself from that sort of thing? And that's what we're training ourselves to do, to see the issues. You can't have repentance if there's nothing to repent. And that's the issue here. In between these is something called repentance. And repentance is something between something. Something has to change. Well, what is it that's changing? I'm changing from this to that. That's what's changing. That's part of biblical repentance. Exception and acceptance of this awesome responsibility. And put in a nutshell, what the Bible's teaching is choices and consequences. Okay, so we've looked at Paul's uh, rendition of, of the fall. Paul's amplification interpretation. Now what we want to do is if you look at page 62 in the notes, and there was one handed out last time, uh, I want to point some things out to, since we outlined the, 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 the overall picture where we're going. And now I want, to, I want to show you some quotes just so you can fortify yourselves that this is not just, I just made this up out of the whole cloth somewhere. Look at the title Sin Damage to Nature's Design. Because we've looked at sin damage to man's design. So now we're going to look at sin damage to nature's design. And the first sentence in that paragraph is important because sometimes some of you in your homeschooling or, or in Christian books, or maybe some of you go to Bible college or something sometime, or you read read, read, in your reading, you'll hear what is called by theologians the teleological argument for the existence of God. And the teleological argument for the existence of God comes from the Greek word teleos, which means uh, an end, its maturity. And so what it's saying is that there's purpose in the universe, therefore there's a purposer, or there's design in the universe, and therefore there is a designer. And while all of us intuitively sense this, that is a very difficult argument to sustain against a sharp opponent. Because what they will do to you, and what they have done to us Christians over the years, particularly in the 20th century, because it was in the 19th century when the teleological argument was developed with great finesse by the man of the name of Paley, P-A-L-E-Y. Paley developed the watchmaker, the, the phrase the watchmaker. Well, that came out of 19th century apologetics, because he argued that nature is like a watch. It has an order, it has a design, and therefore there's a designer. 
Well, in the 20th century, one of the great unbelieving intellects of our time has written a counterbook called The Blind Watchmaker, in which he is arguing that there's so much evidence of non-design and chaos that you can't possibly believe in a designer. And, for example, they'll take Paley's argument about the eye, Paley's argument about the ear, and they'll say, yes, but there are parts of the body that are useless, the appendix and this sort of blah, blah, blah. And they go on and say there's irregularities in the design, and surely God could make a perfect design. He didn't. Well, wait a minute. Remember what we said when we first started this whole thing? You've got to keep all the Scripture together. Don't defend a piece of Scripture and leave it by itself. That's like sending a bomber in over an enemy target and not having any other bombers to cover him. You don't send a piece of scripture into battle without backup. And here's the backup. The answer to the problem here is that nature isn't normal now. So yes, there's chaos in nature, but it's a fallen nature we're looking at. So there are evidences of design, and there are also evidences of maldesign. And the maldesign came about because nature is in a state of disarray caused by the text. This is just what we've got to read. It's cursed ground. So the teleological argument ha is very slippery to work with. And as Christians, you just want to be aware of the fact that someday you flippantly talk about design and designer. Don't be surprised if someone says, yeah, yeah, oh, what about this? And they trot out something that's evidence of chaos. And just don't be shocked because that's, that's what they're going to do to you. So just know that's the game that's going to be played. Okay. In that first paragraph, I give one of my favorite illustrations. Last summer, I was involved in a research project where we were part of, part of a nationwide network, and we, we were trying to measure and characterize the atmosphere on days of high ozone content in the summertime. And the, the problem here was that the government has gone ahead and passed all this legislation against pollution. But they did so before they really knew what they were doing, as usual. And so before the problem was really thought through, we had this rush to legislate. Got to solve the problem. Well, you don't even know what the problem is. Hold it here. And so we got into a dilemma. You're a factory owner in Philadelphia. Let me illustrate the problem. You're a factory owner in Philadelphia, and uh, you get this notice in the mail saying you have to shut down your plant. Why do I have to shut down my plant? Because the pollution content in the air around this part of Philadelphia doesn't meet federal regulations. And you're causing the problem. But you're a smart one. And you realize that most bureaucrats aren't too smart. So you say, wait a minute. Did you tag all the pollution particles to tell that it came out of my stack? Well, no, we just measured this. Well, then how do you know what you measured came from that? Maybe it came from somewhere else. And people got to thinking about that. And Philadelphia in the summertime is downwind from Baltimore and Washington. So guess where most of Philadelphia's pollution comes from? It doesn't come from the smokestack of southwest Philadelphia. It's coming from here. So that was the nature of the project. And so in the course of this project, we're trying to measure pollution all over the northeast United States because nobody knows where it's going. Turns out at night, it moves like 30 or 40 miles an hour. Never knew that before found out about that last summer. But all the legislation's made, lawyers know everything, so we got it all in scripture now. They don't know anything. We don't know where it goes, where it's coming from. But we're, we're fining people, shutting down their plants, because we know. No, you don't. Well, in the course of all this, this study, 
it turned out that I had a chance to talk to some of the nation's leading uh, students and, and professors working with pollution. And one of them gave me this little story. And this is a classic. Because of what city in America do you think of when you think of air pollution? What well, Los Angeles. And he said, isn't this an interesting story? A classic example is the Los Angeles Basin. Long before the automobile and white man's industrialization, Native American Indians referred to the area as the place of the burning eyes. That was the name of Los Angeles in Indian language. It seems that trees growing in the basin area secreted a volatile organic compound that strongly irritated human tissue. Los Angeles has an inversion. So nobody ever lived in L.A., even before the automobile. The Indians wouldn't even camp there. It was a mess. Now, was that caused by pollution? No. It's nature polluting nature. A profound idea that nobody ever thinks about. But if we're Christians and we believe that the ground is cursed, it is not true that man directly pollutes it. Man is the cause of it ultimately in the sense it's cursed because of man. But it's not because man is doing all the polluting. Nature pollutes it. Cows make more gas in the atmosphere than half the plants in the United States. But we haven't legislated against them. I don't know one cow that's been fined. So this is an example of how stupid you can be when you have a false view of nature. And you have this arrogance that thinks that you know everything there is to know and you can tell everybody else how to run their business. Well, as we go on then, notice the next two paragraphs. Once this revelation, see, the idea is that nature, uh, paganism interprets natural evil as a normal thing. So once you grab this, we're over here now, the pagan thinking that nature is normal. Once you grant that, now you begin to profoundly misinterpret things. And watch how quick and disastrous the pagan mind is here. Look at this quote. Once the revelation is accepted, a counterfeit moral code arises. Sir Arthur Keith, a British anthropologist who had just survived Hitler's bombing of Britain, could write these amazing words in 1947. Now, for those of you who are not sure about World War II, that's the war that ended in 1945. So this guy's only writing two years after World War II. Watch what he says. He's in Britain now. This guy's an Englishman. And he writes this. To see evolutionary morality being applied to the affairs of a great nation, we must turn to Germany of 1942. We see Hitler devoutly convinced that evolution produces the only real basis for a national policy. He believed that. This guy's writing two years after World War II. And look at the next quote. And this is another typical thing. Because what, what are we getting at here? What does evolution say is going on? What is the great grand vehicle for the creation of life inside an evolutionary worldview? Struggle. Chaos. Out of death comes life. Let's think about that for a moment. Evolution is profoundly wrong. It's exactly wrong. You can't be more wrong than that that the struggle for existence, survival of the fittest, death, over millions of years, death, 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 death is the grand selector. It's death and the differential rates of death that drive the evolutionary process, according to Darwin. 
So out of death comes life. Isn't something backwards here? And so the result of that, if you really go along with this and you buy into this, Sir Arthur Keith makes sense. Look at Rockefeller, er, writing along before World War II. The growth of large business, and this is back in the Sherman Antitrust days when they were defending the idea that the big business, the railroads and the big oil companies could crush any little guy, any small business guy they wanted to, and they were allowed to do this all over the country. And he defended this. He said, the growth of large business is merely survival of the fittest. This is not an evil tendency in business. It's merely the working out of a law of nature. See? It's very easy to start setting up that morality if you buy into this. So what I'm saying is we can draw little charts up here and look cute. But in practice, this has very big ramifications. Okay, now let's go to the sin damage and man's rule over nature. If you look at the bottom of page 62, and we'll go back to Genesis 3 again, and look at the last part of Genesis 3. The last, uh, Genesis 3, verse 19. The actually, the first part of Genesis 3, 19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the earth. By the sweat of your face. And then earlier, of course, in toil, you shall eat of it. Now, this is a profound observation I found in Dr. Gary North's book on, on Genesis and, and economics. Not that I buy into everything Gary North says, but when he gets into economics, he's got some tremendous insights. And what he is arguing for, uh, that paragraph at the bottom, page 52, is kind of the lead-in. Look at the sense, we are forced to work together to produce whether we like it or not. And a number of other effects also follow. And I want you to read with me through Dr. North's quote. Because as I've tried to show you when we dwell in the, in the event of creation, learn to read your Bible for every area of your life. And I, I, do, I pick out economic illustrations because it's the last thing the average church-going person ever dreams that the Bible addresses as economics. Economics is sort of a neutral thing that's out there, and we Christians go walking into it, and we use it. But the Bible explains the structure of economics. And here's an example. There are no free lunches in a cursed, scarce world. Given the perverse nature of man, a less productive world is a necessity. Look at that. A less productive world is a necessity. Having to work is a way of draining energy that might have been put to perverse ends. Men have less free time to scheme and pillage. They have less strength and expenditure of time, capital, and energy in increasing the productivity of the land could not be used simultaneously in order to commit a murder and mayhem. The curse of the ground is also a blessing for the ground. Men in a scarce world must treat the creation with care if they wish to retain the productivity of the ground. Two powerful observations in economic theory. So, again, the cursing in one way is a blessing because the, the very nature of this curse compels us to limit evil. The curse makes you more inefficient, makes you less efficient. But see, that works great because if you're going to be an evil person, it renders your evil less efficient. 
So the cursing has this restraining structure to it. And it's, I think, a very interesting observation. And it comes right out of the text here that you work, yes, but it's going to be thorns and thistles. And if you want to build a Tower of Babel, it's going to take you some time to do that. You can't do it quick. Sin, in other words, isn't too efficient. Okay, the conclusion, however, is, and if you'll follow me right after the North quote there, there's some conclusions about work and labor. The pagan mind can't interpret the situation correctly. Thinking evil always has been a part of existence, the carnal mentality sees labor as inherently toilsome with no higher calling. And you see that's something else that grows out of this. If you look at the top part of this box, if, if, if biblically, this universe is abnormal, then when I go to work and I have a series of frustrations, what I have to do is be able as a Christian to separate the frustrations from the work I'm supposed to be doing. That it's not the work that's causing me the frustration, it's the impediments involved in that work process, which weren't there had I lived in Eden. And I find that very healthy when I get so frustrated with this happens, that happens, and so forth happens, to think, no, it's not the work that's the problem here. It's the thorns and the thistles in the work that causes the problem. And learn to separate. Learn to separate the effects of the curse on your work from the work. Well, if you are, on the other hand, convinced that the universe is normal, you can't separate it. All work is frustrating. And you will never learn to give thanks because you can't give thanks for something that's inherently screwed up. The biblical Christian, on the other hand, knows that labor was the first occupation of God and of man. A creative person cannot help but labor over nature to produce worthwhile fruit, and so forth. And I think we've explained that. Now, I want to take you to Genesis 4-7 for a moment. Because in Genesis 4-7, it uses this imagery of subduing the earth for our own flesh. And when God speaks to Cain, we use this verse, by the way. Remember verse 7 is an exposition of the analog verse in chapter 3 about the curse on woman. But here we're not worried about the reflection back to Genesis 3. We're just looking at what God says. If you do not well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. And you are going to have to master it. Now, this is not an invitation of a salvation by works or sanctification by works. It's just saying that you better, you are responsible. And you better figure out how to do it. And, of course, the gospel is the tool that we use to do it. But, nevertheless, the goal is that sin wants us. The power of sin wants us, and it's operative in that part of nature nearest to our spirit. And what's the part of nature nearest to our spirit? This, the body. And our programmed, we program our nervous systems. I mean, the body is just predisposed. Our brain is predisposed. It's what sinful thoughts. And we react sinfully. Our mouths are hooked to the brain, and they've got all kinds of automatic patterns in them. And so, the sin principle is there, God says, and you've got to learn to master it. Your job. You're the P. I didn't make your body that way. You guys did it. Now you've got to figure it out. So those are some of the re re uh, results of the curse on nature. Nature is out of control. Nature is cursed. Nature is abnormal. And we are responsible for it. Well, now we come to a section I'm going to deal, open it up tonight, and we're going to start 
and I handed a section out beginning page 66 uh, with you tonight that goes over um, and lists 11 different patterns of suffering and so on. So let me move to what we're trying to do here. What we're dealing with now is the practical coping with suffering. So we're going to deal with a coping strategies. Now all people have coping strategies. You already have a coping strategy. I already have coping strategies. We've already, just because we lived and breathed for the last 20 minutes, we have coping strategies. They're automatic, most of them. We haven't thought through them, maybe, too carefully, but we have already kind of got our coping strategies down. But what I'm challenging you tonight to think about is to critique your own coping strategies in the light of the truth of the fall. That you can look at evil one way, the pagan way, or you can look at it another way, the biblical way. Now, depending on those two viewpoints, that controls your coping strategies. So, let's watch how this works out. I want to take you through some, uh, some scripture, and to do this, I think I would like to go first to 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And we'll follow the notes, but we also, I want to point to the text. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. And as introduction to that passage, we want to look at the non-Christian coping strategies. One of the principles or axioms of the non-Christian is that everything's normal. So that evil, we said in this view, is unlimited. It's not bounded. There's no controls on it. It's always there. And the second great axiom of the non-Christian, pagan mind, is that we have the um, idea that I am not responsible for it, I am passive to it. Now, out of these two axioms comes coping strategies. And what we want to do now is dissect coping with evil from a pagan perspective. Then we're going to come over the other side and say, okay, now we're going to look at the same kind of evil and we're going to ask ourselves, how should we be coping with it from a scriptural point of view? So let's start with a pagan view. Pagan view accepts these two axioms. Now out of this, he can get a variety of different coping strategies and I, I covered two or three of them here. So let's look at these on page 64. There's nothing new under the sun, so if you, you realize as you get older and, and, and read wider and talk to more people that there are not that many viewpoints around. And if you look at page 64, full, first full paragraph, there's one of the, of the pagan coping strategies, a very famous one, put forward in the cult of Christian science in, pure, in its purest form. Mary Baker Eddy wrote, Sickness, sin, and death are illusion. The mirage of error, she said. Toward the end of her life, she had a very persistent toothache, and she received injections of morphine for the unreal pain that was going on in her mouth. Obviously, this strategy breaks down, but what this tries to do 
is it tries to say that what we call evil is just an appearance. This troublesome thing is an appearance. So we try to excuse it. It's just an appearance. Most people can't do this, and Mary Baker Eddy never was successful either doing it. But the point is, people have tried. A second approach, which is the next paragraph, is what that Keith guy did that I quoted earlier. What he tries to do is say, not that the appearance is wrong, but that our evaluation of evil is wrong. In other words, the fact that we think that something wrong is wrong. Why, why does he say that? Because on his basis, what's the universe, normal or abnormal? On his base, it's normal. So, what he's telling us to do is, if we get bent out of shape by stuff, it's our problem. I mean, you see a kid run over by an automobile, it's your problem. If you see a loved one dying of cancer, and they're gagging on their own juices, that's, that's if you, that upsets you that you've got a problem with that. That's just the way it is. Sorry. Well, now, most people can't do those two things. So, most people wind up with another strategy that we're going to look at. And that is the next paragraph, which what most of our English literature people try to do. And that is what they call the sense of the absurd. And I notice you capitalize this. This is the proper way of doing it. It's a technical word. And what they mean by absurd isn't just what we call something's absurd. They mean something very serious by this noun. What they mean is that on the one hand, there's this awful experience of evil and discontent. And on the other hand, I can't do anything about it. What they're saying is that the universe does appear to be abnormal. There's something inside me. Of course, we know what it is. It's conscience. There's something inside me that testifies, yeah, it's wrong that little babies die. Something's wrong with this deal. But on the other side of the problem is that I can't do anything about it. Just there. Evil is forever. So if evil is upsetting and it's also forever and I can't be like Mrs. Baker Patterson Glover Eddy or whatever her name was and, and excuse this thing and say it's an illusion. I can't. I'm not blind. I can't do her thing, and I'm really not sold on Keith's thing. I can't deny my conscience. When I look at somebody suffering, I know they're suffering, and I, that's wrong. So, what do I do? On a non-Christian basis, folks, there's nothing you can do except live with it. And that's called the absurd. You're living with this thing you can't resolve. It's a tension that goes on and on and on, and it is unresolvable fundamentally. Fundamentally, it is unresolvable. Never, ever, will you ever solve this thing. And the sooner you realize that and give up, the better off you're going to be. Now, it's my observation that that has caught on in our society in a profound way. We have people, I doubt it not, that walk through this door every single Sunday, sit in these chairs, hear Bill, hear Mike, hear any of us, and walk right out the door and haven't got a clue to what was said. Week after week after week. He said, wait a minute. They heard, I mean, gosh, we got tape recordings of this thing. Yeah, it happened. 
But when it went in here, something screwed up. Because they've already come to this conclusion. Maybe not in an articulate way. But they've already come to the conclusion that the whole thing's hopeless. The whole thing's hopeless. Evil's forever. I know it's wrong. So what? Now, if you're caught in this, now, practically speaking, what do you try to do? Well, let's go down to the bottom of page 64, because there we have an atheist who tells us. And he wrote a book called The Faith of a Heretic. And look what he says. This is, these are real good truths. Learn to listen to what the non-Christian is saying because some of us who have grown up in the Christian culture don't understand what they're saying. And we miss it when we try to communicate. It's not easy to communicate the gospel. The gospel is simple. But if the other guy is speaking another language, we've got a translation problem. Man can stand superhuman suffering if only he does not lack the conviction it serves some purpose. Is that true? Is that false? That's true, isn't it? That's a true observation. So Dr. Kaufman is right with that sentence. Man can stand human suffering if only he does not lack the conviction it serves some purpose. Even less severe pain, on the other hand, may seem unbearable or simply not worth enduring if it is not redeemed by meaning. A person goes stark raving mad over a pimple if it's really absurd and meaningless. It does not follow. Now, here's where we get into something really cute. And I just could, I, I say this thing, quote, back from the years ago when I read it, because this is a classic of a brilliant atheist trying to deal with the absurd. And keep in mind, this guy knows all the answers. He's read the Bible, and he's consciously rejected it. So, he's been around. This is not some kid in the street. Look what he says. Look at this. This is the best that the non-Christian can do. This is the very best. It does not follow that the meaning must be given from above. That nothing is worthwhile if the world is not governed by a purpose. We are free to give our own lives meaning and purpose. Free to redeem our suffering by making something out of it. The plain fact is that not all suffering serves a purpose and that if there is to be any meaning to it, it is we who must give it. What a thrilling thing if I'm dying of cancer on the, uh, on the hospital bed to be told, well, Clough, this thing really doesn't have any purpose, no meaning. It's just part of the absurd. Try to make some of it, fella. You know, I'm down there agging away. That's a comforting thought. But this is the best, folks. This is the best the non-Christian can do. Because if you don't give meaning to it, and God isn't there to give meaning to it, where's the meaning going to come from? Tell me that one. Now, by reading this, it ought to make you appreciate what we have in the Scriptures. You want to test the grass is green on the other side of the desk? Go jump the fence and see. We just did. I'm taking you on the other side of the fence. That grass that always looks so green over there. You notice it's looking very brown? Pretty gross grass. To sit there and all the meaning's got to come from me. If you, if you talk about salvation by works, 
Holy mackerel. This is it. And like I said, in other words, even, you, even though you know the whole cosmos is purposeless, this is on a pagan basis, pretend as though it isn't inside your head. And you're knowing that you're pretending it because you know that there is no purpose. So you, you, it's self-deceit. So now who are the hypocrites? We're talking about the Christian being the hypocrite. Wait a minute. If you're a non-Christian and you claim to have meaning, you're the hypocrite. Because you know fundamentally there is no meaning out there and you're just making it up. So don't come to me and talk to me about the hypocrisy in the Christian church. I'll talk about your hypocrisy. Your pagan hypocrisy. It's great. Now let's see what the Bible does about looking at this problem. That's why we turn to 1 Corinthians 15, because Paul knew it. Again, ideas are not new. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19. You see, when you start seeing this, people, you no longer have to kind of hold your head down and kind of go through life. It's like, well, poor me, I'm a Christian and I've got this big burden and I, I look so queer to the world. No. Stand up straight. You can look anybody in the eye. We have looked at God, and we have heard his word, and we are not going to be ashamed of it, and we're not going to uh, deny it. And here's a, here's a case in point. The other people, the sad sacks, let's look at verse 17. If Christ had not been raised... So Paul, Paul thought this through. He said, okay, you don't believe the resurrection. Let's see where that takes us. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. That's a great one for a liberal minister. I grew up in a liberal church, in case you don't know. And I can remember every single Sunday hearing this little sermonette and book review. And whenever the Bible was taught, for example, the Gospel of John, it, would be all, it could have been taught by any one of three billion people except the Apostle John. Then we come to Matthew. Oh, Matthew couldn't have read that. It had to be somebody else, and Q got in there somewhere. Who's Q? And so forth. And we've got all this theory about who wrote the Bible. When the Bible just quite clearly says who wrote it. But we have to make all this stuff up. Well, what Paul says is, just look at this. If you don't buy into this, hey, your choice. But now your faith is worthless. Why is it? Because you're still in your sins. What's your faith all about in the Christian faith? The fact that Jesus Christ died and did what? He rose again from the dead. That's history. Now, if that didn't happen, this whole thing's a big farce. And you can say, well, I feel good coming to church. Does not make any difference if you feel good? Maybe the pygmies feel good when they eat somebody's head. But that doesn't make it the fact that this is right or this is wrong. Look what else he says. And then those of us who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. We are sick if this stuff isn't true. You see how Paul had thoroughly thought it through? He had gone to every culture. He had thought through all the answers. Now, not all every detail, but he had it all outlined. And no, no guy was going to come up and, and outsmart Paul. Because Paul had already had the case. He says, this is your case. I'm not impressed. Now let's come over later in the chapter to verse 32, where he draws the grand conclusions. If, from human motives, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let's eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. Is that practical? 
Of course it is. And that's why we come to this last strategy, the fourth one. The fourth coping strategy from the standpoint of unbelief is some form of anesthesia. Now, let me explain that. What does anesthesia do? Why, why do you normally take anesthesia? Go see Dr. Szymanski and he's got a tooth. What is he going to give you? Some local anesthesia. Okay? Deadens the pain. Now, that's exactly the coping strategy of the non-Christian when it comes to this sense of the absurd and they can't deal with it. They will get rid of the pain somehow. Now, let's think about some of the ways you can get rid of pain. Paul says, let's eat, drink, and be merry. Hedonism. It's a way of laughing off the pain. Alcohol. Drug addiction. Musical. Ecstasy. To the point where, you know, just the music controls you. People lose themselves in this. Sexual ecstasy. What is all that about? It's to deaden the pain of this. And that's why all the anti-drug therapy programs that don't recognize this problem fail. My wife has worked for years in a drug therapy thing down the street here. And you know what? That thing is supported by the state of Maryland with thousands of dollars a month and you know how many people they cure in that little outfit? One out of ten. And she goes to work and three weeks later she's got the same person coming back for another four-week treatment at taxpayer expense. Come on, more bucks. And then we have somebody here in Harford County, some Christians get together, some ministers evidently, approach the county detention center for a Christian-based drug rehab, and they're not permitted to do it because it's free. You know why they don't want it because it's free? because the people down the street are making money on the drug therapy and they don't want the competition of a free program. So they got thrown out of the detention center. So this is what goes on. And it gets back to the fact that unless you solidly collide with the cause of the pain, you cannot blame the person for reacting this way. Each person has its own brand of anesthesia. I'm not saying it's, it's right to go out and get drunk. But I'm saying you've got to think about, well, why are they getting drunk? Because life is painful. Okay? Instead of addressing the drinking, why don't we go back a little deeper and find out why is it so painful for you? What's your problem? Why are you looking at life like this? What basis are you approaching your problems with? And the, the, the drugs and the alcohol take care of themselves. But this has got to be coped with, and any coping strategy has got to solve this problem and, and a pagan system built on these two axioms will choose one of these four. Always will happen. Now you can write, see it all over the place. Now what we want to do as Christians and we're going to get into this last page tonight and the patterns of suffering I want to set you up so when you read this next one you'll understand where we're coming from. I have numbered four steps in this thing. It's, it's uh, this is not the only way to look at it but I'm trying to do this so that it appears most highly in contrast uh, with the, um, the non-Christian position. So let's look now at a coping strategy from the standpoint of the Bible. Now we've already dealt with Job passage and some of the other passages. And we noticed that when we did that, 
that God confronts Job in an almost cruel fashion. And we had to deal with that, and I want to comment, because I promised I would comment about that. There's two places where you see this most clearly in the Bible. Romans 9. In fact, since we're over in the New Testament, turn to Romans 9 for a minute, because this is a Paul counterpart to Job. Paul was in deep pain over his fellow Jews. And he tells you a little bit about his pain in Romans 9, 1 and 2. Notice what he says. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me the witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I could go to hell for the sake of my brethren. That's what he's saying. I look at my fellow Jews and they are unbelievers. And it grieves me to the point I would go to hell for those people. Now, you can't get much more grieving than that. Now, Paul's dealing with deep grief, and what is the chapter in the Bible, of all the chapters in the Bible, that deal most with the omnipotence and sovereignty of God? But Romans chapter 9. Look at verse 15. He comes back for comfort, <clears throat> and he says, he quotes this, this passage from Moses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'm going to have compassion on whom I have compassion. And basically, I run the show. And you remember the dialogue that God had with Job? Kept asking him questions. Who built it? Were you around when I built this? And he went on and on and on. And you sit here and think, oh, geez, you know, this really doesn't look like swift counseling theory. I mean, this, where's the compassion, God, in all this? And it's something to ask. Why, when you get severe grief in the scripture, in these kinds of things, do you have God coming off like he's so uncompassionate? I'm not sure I have the whole answer, but I suggest that one reason why that starts, and this is sort of the beginning of a biblical coping strategy, is that we're never going to cope with a problem unless we, do, we go face to face with who God is. And when we're in the middle of a suffering situation, our emotions are so twisted out of shape, our body chemistry is all off, we can barely think in the middle of a suffering situation. So somebody has to come in and shock us into awareness. And I suspect that that's what was going on in Job, and I think there's the same thing with Paul. That God comes in and reminds us of that first distinction that we learned back in the creation. I am the creator, and you are the creature. Period. Get that. And he has a number of ways of making us get that. It's not being uncompassionate. It's not being uncompassionate. It's to deal with shock. And it's apparently a way, it's not saying that God doesn't always do this. I mean, he, sometimes he, he'll be very compassionate. But I'm saying that there are these times in Scripture where he comes on pretty heavy. And you wonder, why does he do that? Is, is God not a God of love? Yes, he is a God of love. It's precisely because he's doing it. He's creating a shock so that we'll realize and go back to basics. So that's the first thing, to go back to the creator-creature distinction, because if you, don't, if you lose that, you've lost the whole thing. All you're going to wind up with at the end, if you don't get that straight, is you're going to go skewing off into another non-Christian coping strategy. So that's why in that last paragraph I have to close out with those sentences. Does he, God have a plan in his omniscience for you that your mind may not know much about. That's omniscience versus 
our knowledge, finite, infinite, finite knowledge thing? Is his sense of justice better or worse than yours? And we have to, I have to come to grips with that. God says that to me. Sorry, but who am I dealing with? The second step is, now that we've established that he is creator, and if he is creator, what does that mean? It means that he is sovereign, that he is uh, omnipotent, that he is immutable, that he's eternal. And once we've established that, now that creates the second thing. Evil, therefore, is bracketed. If he is really sovereign, then the conclusion must be that evil is being shaped by him. So while this looks like it's a shocking, uncompassionate intrusion by God, actually it's very compassionate because he wakes us up to who he is and then he forces us to think some of about evil. And now we're, not long, now we're not arguing that evil is hopeless. We're just kind of angry because it got aimed at us. But at least we've advanced one step. You see, the, ch the problem has changed. It's not just, uh, I can't do anything about it. But, you know, something could happen about this thing. And how come you're not doing something about it? So now we've moved the discussion. So by the time you get to the second step, the discussion has moved from an evil that's hopeless to an evil that's being manipulated and controlled. Now we've got to deal with why. Why is this particular evil at this particular point in my particular life? And that's the kind of, that's the kind of dialogue that God wants us to have with him. Because that respects his sovereignty. That's respect for who he is. Now we come, then, to the third step, which is the step that I have all those patterns on, and I suggest 11 different kinds of patterns of suffering that you can observe in Scripture. And the idea there, as you review those for next time, is to think in terms of the fact that each one of those, while not giving a total answer to evil, show reason number one, reason number two, reason number three, reason number four. In other words, it's showing that there are reasons why God shapes evil the way he does in people's lives. And you go on and on, past that, and you come over to page 68, and you get to the end. That's where we want to go. The goal of the biblical strategy is toward evil, uh, toward evil is an inner peace that comes from looking at your Lord and knowing, and really knowing, He has a perfect plan for your life. But you can't get this quiet conviction by thinking and reacting with a carnal mentality. You've got to deal with it, and it takes hours, it takes days, it may take weeks, it may take months to get right in this area. You may have to carry on quite an extended conversation with God. I'm not denying that it takes time to do this. All I'm pointing out is that the biblical strategy is based on truth. The biblical strategy is the opposite of anesthetizing yourself. And therein is, I think, one reason why in Ephesians 5, when it says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, it's not talking about a comparison. It probably is talking about a contrast. Well, stop anesthetizing yourself and start thinking. Because if you look down this next paragraph, there's something very interesting to how Jesus dealt with suffering in his own life. And one of the most graphic illustrations, and you'll see this as you read the notes, I give you some passages in Matthew in that paragraph. And one of them deals with how Jesus dealt with suffering on the cross. And it's interesting that while he was still doing the work of the cross, he rejected an anesthesia that was given to him, offered. And he said, no, I don't want that. 
But after he finished the work on the cross, he accepted it. Now, why did he do that? What was that meaning in that little transaction? I suspect it was because Jesus' way of coping with suffering was he was so skilled in his perfect humanity that he would talk to his father. Remember the struggle in Gethsemane? Remember with Satan? He dealt with Satan with an open mind. He didn't flee it. He didn't mask it. He didn't put it off. He dealt with it. And he dealt with it in his spirit. And then it would be dealt with, and then he could rest, and then he could do whatever he had to do. But I think there's a model there, and that's why I'm trying to say, look at these coping, look at these patterns, and see, uh, uh, there's a lot of verses that I've packed in there. If you can go through some of them, and just see that the scriptures do show there's reason to suffering under God's plan. Father, thank you for the fact that you do not leave us with, without answers and that you do intrude in our lives. And we pray tonight that you'd encourage those who are in a suffering situation or in evil that this is not a problem without a solution. That there it does exist, your everlasting arms. That you are a God of comfort. That we have to see what kind of a God you are before we can receive the comfort. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. We'll have a time of discussion for a few minutes. Those of you who want to leave, feel free. So, the thing that you want to keep going back to is that what we're dealing with, the specifics like those patterns of suffering that you'll see, that makes sense only if you buy into the worldview of the Bible. They're, they're not going to be accepted if you don't, don't accept that. So, so it gets back to the fundamental starting point, your basic worldview, um, where you're coming from as far as your total, total view of reality. And it's got to be biblical. And if that isn't, then these are just little props. And anybody can really knock you out by attacking the props. I think when you deal with somebody that's suffering and you're not sure where they stand, the safest thing is to try maybe, because most people will say they kind of agree that God's there and so on, and you, can, you, can, you basically have a choice of one of two approaches. One is a direct approach, the other is an indirect approach. The direct approach is to simply apply the comforting verses that God has a plan, all things work together for good. I mean, you want to say it more compassionately than just spitting out a scripture, but that, in essence, is what you're saying. But what if they say to you, well, it seems like you must be, you know, not paying attention? All right. Then, at that point, now you've identified the fact that this, the person has problems and is not going to buy into that right then. So, now you've, you've uncovered something. And so now you have to deal with that. that. And so the best way of dealing with that is go back to start questioning them a little bit about where they're coming from. Well, um, do you think that God really is a bad God? Uh, I mean, let's get, it all, let's get it all out on the table. And, and, you know, you get this pile of stuff. And then, another, uh, then you can, after doing that, just simply say, well, now, let's suppose that um, God isn't there. Let's look at it from this perspective. 
And in this perspective, the universe is just there, evil is just there. This is an odd approach for most people. But what I tried to show you tonight is in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul thought through that approach. So the issue there would be, well, um, why don't we just eat, drink, and be merry? Because there's no purpose to it at all. Why bother even find any purpose? So you have to kind of work both poles. Um, the book of Scripture that most clearly, and from, from which, by the way, I didn't say tonight, but the place where Paul got that quote, eat, drink, and be merry, you know, we think that came from the Greeks. It really didn't. It came out of the book of Ecclesiastes. And so the whole book of Ecclesiastes is written to this point of view because Solomon had already thought this whole thing through. And the book of Ecclesiastes shows that, that if you want to start with this position, then here's where you're going to go with it. And sometimes, very reluctantly, I have pushed people away from the gospel to make them come to the gospel. In other words, they, I always think of it as a chair, and I always think of it as saying, okay, um, you don't want to look at the scriptures. Fine. Let's go do this number, and I want to push you. Now, I want to push you to the logical conclusions of your own position. And the logical conclusion of your own position is that you, you live in a meaningless universe, dark and, and evil, that evil is forever. Now, how are you going to cope with that? And sometimes that's enough of a shock. Well, they don't like that either. And what they want, somehow, they want enough of the comfort that God is there, but they still want to blame Him. And, and that's where uh, it's a very difficult thing to work with because right at that point, they're angry, their emotions are high, they're in a shock, a soul shock from suffering. And... Um, uh, they, they have to sit back and you, you can't directly... When a person is that hurting and that painful, oftentimes it's your demeanor and how you have handled suffering or how somebody else has handled suffering to show them the reality of what you're talking about. But, but you can't compel belief. You can't compel assent. You have to let them vent let them give you their stuff because at least in letting them give you their stuff what you're really doing is hoping their conscience works I mean no matter who they are they have a conscience so you want to kind of get that inside activated and that may be activated as they, as they talk through with you but once they've talked it through and once they've said well I disagree God could have done this and I'm angry at God for doing this and this and that Oftentimes, if you ask the Holy Spirit to give you insight into that, you can make comments. And the comments can be very gracious in that they're not attacking the person, but you could just say, well, have you thought that perhaps? Or have you thought about this? Uh, so oftentimes, it doesn't pay you to qu too quickly defend God. Like I said, sometimes you have to take the chair the other way. So there's a variety of approaches in, in doing that. But there's no way that you can just lay on a verse and, and the person buys into it. Because you know from when you're hurting, a person comes up to you and just drops a verse in your lap. I mean, that may help, but you need more than that. And that really doesn't help to do it. Um, so uh, in response to how do you cope with a suffering person, it's person variable. 
And I can't, I can't give you a format. You just have to kind of operate within the Christian position, knowing that sometimes you can directly deal with it. If they're a Christian, it's just remembering who and what God is, remembering his attributes. He is sovereign, he is righteous, he is just, and so on. But if they're real stubborn and obstinate about it, I kind of let them feel the results of their own view and, and do this chair. I push the chair the other way and say, ah, forget the Bible, forget God. Let's just see what we got here. And that's the whole way the 20th century is going anyway, so join it, you know, don't fight it, join it. And that's what, that's why um, Cindy uh, Baxter, she, it's our problem in the classroom. Because she tries to teach English literature and, and what has she got? Ernest Hemingway. Well, that's a great uh, comfort. You know, he, he's going to live his way. He lived his philosophy out. He blew his brains out with a shotgun. It's a very logical result. If I thought Hemingway's, if I thought the way Hemingway did, I'd probably blow my brains out too. I mean, it's a very rational solution to his problem. But, but the, she lacks that because in the classroom, the problem is the kids have already bought into this hopelessness, and the literature that she can find in the 20th century literature class. Uh, just plays into it. And so all she has to be is an advocate against it, saying, what's wrong with Ernest Hemingway? And by implication, what's wrong with you? I don't believe that way. It's a very bleak century. We have not had um, freedom of uh, optimism against this issue probably for at least 50 to 60 years in our culture. I mean, the intelligentsia have all bought into this. That's why the black humor, I don't mean black racial humor, I mean the black humor kind of thing. It's what it's all about. It's a laughing at the idea of purpose. And um, well, it makes sense. If, if you're going to be blind to God's existence and you shut your eyes, you're going to act, walk, speak, and talk like a blind man. And this is, what it's all, this is what's happening. But it makes it very difficult for practical things like you're talking about medical. I mean, how you, in medical, as you're a nurse, um, medical people see suffering people all the time, and now here you are. Um, you're an employee of, an, of a quote secular organization, and you know doggone well as a Christian, the only answer to this person's suffering is I've got to get into the gospel with this person, which means I've got to kind of <laughs> kind of around the policy of the organization, and that's why. I believe that if our culture continues to deteriorate, we will see what happened in the Middle Ages when the Roman Empire fell apart. Uh, who was it that had the hospitals? It was the Christian church. And who was it that had the sanitariums? Who was it that took care of the elderly people? It's really the Christians that started all these institutions. And what we call hospitals today are just secularized temples left over from Christian civilization but the Christianity has gone long gone from them. And so we have this problem, you know, years from now they'll be killing people in the hospitals, mercifully, of course, but they'll be doing it. Not, it's, it's a very difficult problem, and this is probably one of the most difficult problems. I consider the issue of suffering more difficult than evolution to deal with, because this really grabs people. And it's, it's almost ironic that in their horror and their suffering and their pain, they will curse God to his face. God did this to me. And it's always intriguing if you think about it. Why is it that they're so insistent God is sovereign? 
At no other point in their life, if, if they had a blessing and, and they won the lottery, or they, they did some, uh, made some great investment and it worked out, or they're a, a self-made businessman and their business just flourished, you'd never, never hear, oh, thank God that he did this for me. But let there be suffering and sorrow and damn him for allowing this in my life. Well, what, is that what kind of spirit is that? But it shows you, when they do that, it shows you that they know God's there. You know, let's drop the facade. They know very well that he is there. They know very well that he's sovereign and he's in charge. Because the cursing of God makes no sense if he's not a cursing, cursable object. So the very act of cursing him for doing something is a confession that you really believe in him. I had a Christian woman tell Carol one time she used to work at one of the banks in Bel Air and uh, she has a very quick sense of humor. Uh, I always admire somebody, because I, I do not have a quick sense of humor. I can think of something three weeks later. But this lady, I mean, she is so slick. She can come off just, boom, like Harvey Wagner can. This, this uh, straight-laced humor that, you know, you wonder whether the guy made a joke or not, and he's just sitting there, and you, you're sitting, wondering, should I laugh at this? Did he really mean that or what? Anyway, she had this boss, and he came storming out the bank, bank guy, storming out one day, cursing and raving mad. And so she, she's the teller, and she yells over, Well, Bob, are we having another prayer meeting today? And it was, it was great, because she had the ability to make a joke out of it. But he got the point. And uh, she could do that. And she's done that with some more serious cases than that. That's just a humorous workplace thing. But it's, it's, it's neat to be able to do it that way. That's slick. I don't have that skill. <laughs> but she did. She does still this day. But the idea behind suffering, I think we have to come back to the basic issue. And I think that if nothing else happens in our hearts in the middle of a suffering situation, the exercise to do is to just go back over the attributes of God. I mean, when you're upset and angry and frustrated, first of all, you need, you need a break. And you may have to go take a walk or do something. But, but to, get, to make the break, you've got to get your spirit functioning again. And that in anger and when we're overtaken in shock, I think what's really happening is our, our spirit, the regenerate spirit, has been totally suppressed. And it's just our brain and mouth blowing off. And what we do is have to reestablish control, but it's not this self-discipline stuff you learn in somebody's seminar. It's, it's rather the conscience, listening, going back to the conscience and the basic spirit and thinking about who God is. Nothing more complicated than that. Who is sovereign here? And the next thing, who is powerful here? Who loves me and has shown me in history that he does. Who knows me better than me? Psalm 139. And if you'll, if you'll notice this, you'll see that the, the authors of Scripture, now in those patterns of suffering, there's some psalms that I have in there that you want to look at. And look at how the psalmists handle their suffering. And you'll see inevitably they go back to God's character. They'll remember something he did for them. 
but they'll remember it as a revelation of his omnipotent hand. They'll use some expression like that. It won't just be, I remembered God's blessing. It'll re they'll remember, I remember the God who blessed me. That's the way they do it. And um, if I can't do that, I don't recover well. And the times that I can recover well from a suffering situation or a shocking situation is only when I say, all right, Clough, let's go back. Now, God, who, who are you? Where am I in this situation? And just get back to A, B, C, D. And it's humbling because it's just basic truth that we all know. We could sing hymns to it every Sunday. But the act of pausing to go back to that, I believe, gets your spirit going again. And that's what has to happen. And I think that's why you see Jesus on the cross behaving the way he did, where he refused, when he was in that awesome suffering situation, he refused to compromise his mental alertness. And it was only after the work that he allowed, he, he rested. Remember when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? What did he want? One thing he asked the disciples. Stay awake. Just be here with me. They couldn't even do that. Of course, they didn't realize what, probably, you know, what he, they didn't realize what was going to happen. And we can look back and recall, well, if I'd been there, I would have helped the Lord. But not really. But you see, what happened was that he prayed, and then, then it was done. He seemed to pray intensively for a period, and it's like, okay, that's finished. Done. And now, go on to the next thing. So it looks like from his pattern, that's what he did all the time. And if you look at David in the Psalms, that's what he apparently did all the time. Because in so many of his Psalms, uh, whether he confessed his sin, you can tell the processes, the thought processes that he used. If you want to look at how he confessed his sin, there's three Psalms that do this. You have to read all three of them to see how he does it. Psalm 32, Psalm 38, and Psalm 51. And you watch how David dealt with it. And you'll see that at one point he says, God against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now, that's a strange thing because he had sinned against Bathsheba and he sinned against her husband. He sinned against the people of Israel. But it was because he had suddenly realized he had gotten focused on the fact that the real sin was against God. And he became God-centered. And that's what we don't do when we're involved in suffering. And you only can get there with your mind working with your spirit. And you can't do it when you're drugged. And I'm not saying don't, don't, get, don't take medicine or anesthesia. That's not what I'm saying. Some Christians have said that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that there are times when you shouldn't. There are times when you should just not even eat until you can deal with this problem. Before the Lord, quietly and privately. And then comes a time of peace, and then we can go eat, and we can take our medicine and do whatever we have to. But you can't be drugged and do spiritual battle. The two are incompatible. Anything else? Time is up. Okay, next week we'll, we'll conclude the coping strategies, and then we're going to get on uh, to the next big chapter, which is going to be the flood event and God's judgment in history. So.